Okay. Come with us on a journey. Oh, hang on. Okay. I'm trying to listen, hear it. It's very quiet tonight. Yeah. Find my phone. I can't hear it. Yeah, well, we just can't hear. Um... What? What do you mean we're on? We are on. Go. Oh, we're on. Okay. I guess. Wait a minute. That was a very quick opening. I want. I want my money back. Hello. Come on, we're paying for the satellites. Just do the show. All right. So, anyways, you're listening to Ghost Chronicles uh, Next Generation. No, that's the wrong one. Uh, Morning Edition. No, no, no. Wait a minute. Let me figure it out. Uh, it's Across the Water. That's the one. Um, International. That's right. Well, the Irish Ghost- Edition. Yeah, the Irish Edition. Ghost Chronicles, uh, the Irish Edition, right here on Tojinet Pararex, Planet Paranormal, Astronet Radio, Radio Krako, and the. Uh, Eddie Fisher Musical and Network. And the Huff Paranormal Murmur Box. Okay, that works too. Yeah, so I have Rod Kolick, and uh, that guy interrupted me like he always is, so rude. Uh, Mr. Uh, Stephen Parsons. Who is, good evening. Should I, and should I say doc, Dr. Stephen Parsons? No, not a doctor. Who is, uh, who is not in the land of the Red Dragon, but is in the land of the Golden Harp. What up to the, don't they have like a gold dragon or a pink dragon or no, something? No, green no. Dragon. Must be a green the, dragon, of, right? We're in the land of the golden harp and the, and the green leprechaun. All right, fine, whatever. Because so we've, aligned, we've aligned the satellites and we're broadcasting you, to you tonight live from County Wexford at a haunted secret location just next to a table full of tea and cakes. <laughs> what? No beer? Yes, we're having afternoon tea here in County Wexford. Uh-huh. It's a tradition that goes uh, goes right the way back to Roman times uh, and has been particularly celebrated in this centenary year of the 1916 uprising. Oh, interesting. Not. Anyways, uh, I saw a picture of you and your family, uh, and you were evidently having tea somewhere outside. And, right. and I, I thought it was interesting because you had actual, tea. you know, like real teapots. Of course. We're yeah. not heathens. America, America, I mean, the, the tea bag is, you know, it was a British invention for the Americans because we, you know, we, we realised that you required your tea package when you threw it into the harbour at Boston. So uh, we decided that, you know, we would come up with the bag. Oh, we were just fed up with that loose tea and we said, we ain't going to take it, it anymore. Not, dumped it in the what, harbour. Do you, know that was the, do you know why the Brits were so annoyed about the, the Boston Harbour, the Boston Tea Party? It had nothing to do with throwing the tea into the harbour or the taxation. It was because he and Americans didn't put the milk and sugar in first. Oh, that's a shame. Anyway. So uh, with you today, uh, well, before I get into that, I, 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 and okay. I, was talking, I was talking a little bit before the show about uh, I was watching this show uh, with Prince Harry. You remember Prince Harry, right? I think he's a yeah, he's a friend. Yeah, uh, he <clears throat> led a he led a group of uh, uh, disabled vets, uh, I, uh, wounded warriors to the North Pole. And, well, he was only with them for uh, about three days, but uh, it was an amazing journey. I mean, his guys that lost legs, they lost arms. It was one guy with a broken back. And, uh, you know, what's that? (laughs) Michael just said it sounds like Saturday night in Wexford. (laughs) Oh, there you go. So anyways, uh, it it was pretty amazing because each, each one of them had their 
tow their own sled uh, with with all their gear in it, and uh, you know they didn't have like porters or nothing. They were all they made it through, and and everybody you know thinks of the North Pole, they think of this like plain of ice, but it really isn't. It's it's a moving pole, and uh, they, they what happens is the ice gets pushed up and. And you have these ridges of uh, ice and mountainous, uh, and you have to drag your crap all over. And these guys are on skis, and as I mentioned, uh, you know, some of them lost legs and arms, and, and they, they, you know, carried on right through it. And uh, Prince Charles, I mean, not Prince Charles, uh, Prince Harry was with them for three days, and, and then he had commitments, so he had to leave. But, uh, you know, after they left, they, they spoke very highly of him, said, you know, he's uh, in line to the, the crowd, but he's just a regular bloke like us. So there you go. I, I thought it was amazing. You know, I mean, you can do what you want to do. Basically, you know, you can just feel sorry for yourself or you can accomplish something. And, and that's simply amazing, uh, the power of the human spirit. Well, it's something, I mean, it's, it's ingrained within, within um People forget, I think, what pe- what they are actually capable of. Mm-hmm. I think we 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 tend to forget how amazing we really are, and uh, it's inspiration. We we think of it as inspirational, but I don't think that many disabled people per se. I don't know what this has got to do with Ghost Chronicles, but we'll we'll figure it out later. I don't think disabled people per se think of themselves as inspirational. The same as I spoke to a lot of vets who were in World War Two who, who mm-hmm. did extraordinary things. You know, they flew in combat, they flew over Germany, they fought the Germans and the Japanese, and that not what not one of them ever said at any point did they think that what they were doing was heroic they were just doing either what they told to do or what they had to do uh, we consider them heroes now we consider them to be inspirational we have the olympics and the paralympics coming up here in the or in brazil in in the summer months and we have a lot of our broadcasters doing programs about inspirational paralympians and how inspirational are but we live in a in, an, in a country where the disabled are taking the brunt of the austerity cuts at the same time yeah i agree with you it's it's a very strange situation where at one hand they're being applauded for being inspirational and on the other hand they're being called scroungers and and skivers it's a very bizarre situation and, and you know steve I, I i just posted that because we had memorial day here in the u.s we just finished and you know the government goes out and they you know and they honor all these vets but damn, if they don't put their money where their mouth is, you know, yeah. some of them are still suffering. I mean, they, they, yeah. they, they, you know, they tragic amount for for our freedom, and and yet we can't take care of them. It, it's really a sad situation. And you know what? It's not actually a new situation. There's there's um, if you go right the way back to when Queen Elizabeth the first defeated or had the, the Royal Navy defeated the Spanish Armada in the 1570s, 15, 1580s, sorry. Um, she, after that, she had seconded all of the the, the 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 sailors in the navy and promised them a great deal. When the Spanish threat had receded and the Armada had been defeated and had broken itself on the coasts of Scotland, Ireland, and Wales, and the nation was celebrating, the sailors and the ships were towed up creeks and backwaters and abandoned, and they petitioned the Queen for charity, for support for them and their families, and they were just forgotten and left yeah, to starve and left to yeah. rot. I said that, anyway, I mean, that was, nothing's really changed. 
No, I suppose you're right. But you know, the the amazing thing is, I started off with that uh, expedition of of the uh, wounded warriors to the North Pole, and it goes to show you the the uh, the spirit of and what of what humans can do. And this is going to lead us right into our show, of course, because. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, I mean, we we go back and we look at all the great accomplishments of mankind since the beginning, the pyramids and all these other things, and uh, alien alien conspiracists always say, you know, man could never do that. It had to be alien intervention somewhere, and you know what? I think it proved that we can do quite a bit uh, if we put our minds to it. Absolutely, and, and I'm I'm in a country tonight which has monuments that are more ancient than the pyramids some of go. the most ancient um, memorials to man and his works and religions we don't even understand um, but there's a huge complex of memorials in the center of ireland um, called newgrange and um, way out of my area of expertise. It is haunted. It has ghosts and legends and mythology attached to it. Of course. And, and I'm looking across the 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 the, the table surrounded by the rock cakes and the teapots and the to the oh, what's a rock? of County wait, 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 Wexford. What's, what's, what's a rock cake? It's a cake made of rocks. It's an Irish tradition. They take rocks from the mountains and they ah. coat them with, with uh, yeah, it, it is uh, what it says. Um, it must be a little heavier, though. Uh, but our guest tonight, we have um, Did, uh, Jackie two, make two old friends of the show. We have Michael Benson from Wexford Paranormal. And, hey, hey, Michael. And we have Jackie Hines, um, who has been on your show recently with Anne. And he, uh, Jackie is a folklorist and historian. Mm-hmm. And I can't think of a better person to put me and you right about Newgrange and its history. Newgrange? What's Newgrange? Uh, a building, a memorial that's older than the pyramids. Which oh, there you go. So, oh, it's perfect leading. We got that. Yeah, I led that in before. Yeah, oh. about, yeah. For the podcasters, if you go back about a minute and a half, you'll hear me talking about Newgrange. Oh, very good, very good. Carry on. Oh no! Over to me is that? Yes, over to you, Jackie. <laughs> I'm trying to dredge my brain to figure out what are the dates for Newgrange, but I, it is certainly. It's a Wednesday. It's definitely a Wednesday. <laughs> it's. I think it's more than uh, 2,000 years before Christ BC, so 4,000 odd years old. And it's a, it, Newgrange itself is a very large, what we would call here, a passage tomb. So imagine about three quarters the size of an American football pitch or a soccer pitch. So it's quite a substantial building. And through uh, for, it, for those in America, that would be a field, okay? A field, yes. A field, okay. In Ireland, you know, you can get into trouble over fields if you've got a small field and you want a bigger field. So we, we don't measure by fields over here because that can become very problematic. Oh, dear. Uh, but, oh dear. Uh, yeah, it's a good big size anyway. So um, on the winter solstice, on the winter solstice, the rising sun will shine in through a, what they call a light box above the doorway. Mm-hmm. Um, and only the light box was obvious, but the sun would shine down the passageway. Um, and the funny thing about it is that the passageway is, the very back of the passageway is above the the entranceway. So the construction, and this was a time when there was no track excavators, no architects, um, mm-hmm. all done by just 
watching the sun, the direction of the sun, the movement of the sun, but to make sure that on the winter solstice, the passageway is illuminated, fully illuminated with the morning sun. And um, every year they have a raffle for to for the 20 visitors that have the honour of being in the passageway as the winter solstice comes in through it. Um, but it shines the whole, it illuminates the three burial chambers that are at the back. They're set up in a cruciform shape, so like a cross. The most ornate ones are the two on the at the front, to the left and the right. The largest one and the the least decorated, but the largest one is at the back. And the sunlight will hit the back passageway for about. That sounded really terrible. The two, <laughs> the two boys are laughing here at me. Halfway through that sentence, I realised that sounded really bad. Not, but, not in the U.S. We saw nothing wrong with it. Carry on. <laughs> They did ask my opinion. Dear God, I'm regretting it now. Uh, but it illuminates. <laughs> it's a. Oh no, I'm not even going there. Everything now sounds wrong after that. So Newgrange has a wonderful um, quartz white face to it. The stone at the back is also decorated in a Celtic style. They're really beautiful, um, intricate stone, all done with uh, stone axes. So, like I said, no no modern machinery for to construct it. But Newgrange is one of 32 passage tombs in the Boyne Valley Complex. They call it the Boyne Valley Complex. So Newgrange is in the middle and Nouth and Douther on um, either side of it, to its left and to its right, and they're the most famous of it. Um, and uh, like Steve they... said, it's older than the pyramids. So, so excuse don't me, Jack. take your holidays to Egypt. Come to, uh, to come to Ireland and Ireland's ancient east. Well, that's, that's what tourism I'm, plug. Well, that's what I'm trying to ask. That's, that's what I'm trying to ask you: is uh, are these uh, tombs open to the public? Absolutely. Yep, they are. Uh, Newgrange is opened all year round um, and you go in, you don't drive up to Newgrange because um, of its significance. Um, so you drive to the interpretive centre and they take you on a bus and I think it goes up about every 20 minutes. But obviously because it's one of our top attractions in Ireland, it gets very, very busy. So best to be there very early in the morning. Um, Before and the make... passage gets blocked. <laughs> That is actually technically correct because it gets very busy up there. But it is a wonderful site. Nouth and Douth, I think, open probably in March and stay open till September. But they are really fabulous. Um, they're a wonderful jewel in Ireland's um, ancient heritage and, and as a tourism offering then as well. But beside that is the Royal Hill of Tara on our, on our other program. I think well, I had just come back from there, Wait a minute, before we get... Don't, don't leave me yet. Uh, well, not questions. because I, I should just point out that at this moment, um, we might be, be... There's an all-black helicopter that's been circling around us, so we might get onto conspiracies a little later because, um, well, it's just men a black, An all-black helicopter. Yep, men in black. Better watch out. I mentioned aliens. That was it. Their antenna went up, and that's it. But anyways, Jackie, I, I wanted to ask you, you said these, these are tombs. So what was the purpose of having, uh, you know, the opening where the sun comes in for it? Is, is there a particular reason? Is that to move the spirit to the next uh, world or, or, or what? Or is it, was it ceremonial as well? I'd, because they're a small tomb, there's probably a suggestion that it might well be the 
the high king or the the head of the clan that is buried there and you know two or maybe more of their family members when the tombs were discovered in the 1960s there were no bone remains left and the oh. whole thing had collapsed in on itself so it was literally just a mound so when it was excavated um all of the reconstruction work was done um the it has a corbelled roof so when you go into the tomb itself um when you look right up above you it the the roof it's almost like a cone shape it corbels up around you and it's and it's still intact so you're you're underneath a mound of many hundred tons of um soil but the roof is perfectly intact it doesn't leak so uh the men that were involved in constructing this 4000 years ago were very very good at their their architecture their engineering and, and really that's why they were so good feat. with the canals and roads like yeah but i suppose it's very even you know even in you know in the period after in, in the last 2000 years and i think we've had this chat before that when people didn't understand how science and how this the the solar system how the sun worked this was a really supernatural thing for to see um for to understand the movement of the sun how it can be how it tells us about you know how it can uh foretell how seasons are going to be that leads us all into our you know pagan gods and the superstitions and the traditions that go around pagan gods and um so it's a, it, it you know they these were huge significant but we don't events. we don't actually understand the religion we think we, be, we we think that we understand the religions of the ancients but we don't really do we because we we try and interpret the signs the symbology the 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 architecture we we don't have any writing we don't have any texts religious texts describing what they did with the bodies why that they put them in a certain way why they allowed the light box to be aligned for the midwinter why they did things lots of archaeologists lots of anthropologists have come up with ideas but they are only at the end of the day ideas that they're not even hypotheses that can be tested we know that the alignments exist they do for stonehenge they do for many we have passage tombs and uh, on the the british mainland uh right throughout wales on the islands but we don't understand what they mean we just believe that we do and i think it's the same in north america as well you 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 have um there's there are lots of burial mounds there's also one that's shaped like a giant snake if i if i remember right the rod mhm Yeah, and I think that's in that like Ohio. Ohio. Yeah, I was just going to say yeah. that. Yeah, there's different ones, uh, but you're right. We don't know. I mean, we don't know a lot of things. To be honest, well, you think about it. I mean, for instance, uh, they just had a posting that they found some uh, this Indian Indian meaning in India uh, town or, or whatever. The site was 2,500 years older than. they thought it was. So think about that 2500s. I mean we we've only been a country for 200. So I mean we, people have been living for you know thousands and thousands of years. It, it's it's you know it's amazing that you know the knowledge that was acquired and it may have been lost too. There may have been uh dark ages in ancient times where well, a, a lot of knowledge was lost. 
Yeah, I mean, the span of time, I don't think we can actually get our heads around it because, I mean, even yesterday, we were on the, um, not very far from where we are now, a place called On the Hook Head, next to Ireland's most haunted house, uh, Loftus Hall. And <laughs> there is a small church there, and there's a small plaque, and we took the boys into the church, and the church is on a site that was founded by a Welsh monk. 1,500 years ago. It is a span of time that we couldn't even try to communicate to the boys that, that length of time. You know, how do you explain to somebody that there's been a, a religious settlement and a monastery on a site for 1,500 years? And yet, in terms of the pyramids, New Grange, we, they are eons in time beyond that. We are closer to that monastic establishment of 1,500 years ago than it is to New Grange. Mm-hmm. We have been, you know, man has been here a long time, and you said uh, forgotten. I think we've forgotten far more than we remember. I think, I think you're right. <laughs> you know, we, we, we like to think that we're educated and that we understand and that we know, but really, with um, our understanding of the past, m- go back much beyond a thousand years um, when record so, keeping is yeah. reliable. Much I think, beyond uh, that, we'd be coming to a territory that's grey and murky and the Dark Ages. Yeah, and uh, I, I think that's uh, the telephone call from the dead there. I think is, that's our friend yeah, Trent yeah. Beaches. Yeah. yeah, he's always trying to get in on the show. Yeah, I know it. Yeah, you're right, though. And so so Ireland, you know, you, you really, you'd be honest with you, you don't really think of Ireland as, as in the same comparison to Egypt. Uh, but as uh, Jackie was telling us. Uh, but you know what? We're halfway into the show almost, and we haven't talked about too much of the paranormal. And, and you've got one of Ireland's top investigators sitting with you, and I don't mean you, uh, Michael Benson. And so, Michael, has you, have you ever investigated any of these places? Yeah, just when you mentioned, the, well, when Steve mentioned Hook Head and, and, and Hook Lighthouse, <clears throat> there's been a, a, a light house of one sort or another or, or a signal at least for the past 800 or, or more years and, and it would have been monks who would have manned and maintained that lighthouse for, for a significant period of time and interestingly enough there are numerous accounts and numerous reports of sightings of of mysterious and, and phantom monks at that location and, and in that particular building that's there uh, to, to the present day Really? Yeah uh- are they? Uh, is anyone documented? I mean, are there? You know, uh, is there any historical? Um, well, even in terms doc- of living history, the last families and the last lightkeepers that would have lived there uh, would would have recounted their personal experiences of unexplained occurrences and, and shadow figures and, and monk-like individuals being seen inside in the lighthouse. Uh, on the stairs and on a particular floor level, I think it's the first floor when you go up the stairs in the uh, in the lighthouse. Yeah, we did spend uh, a short period of time there a number of years ago. It's it's an interesting location and on a, on a wild night, there, there's no more remote um, location you could possibly find yourself in. I know you have a particular interest and affinity with lighthouses as well, Ron. I do, I do. I'm the chairman of the board for the Friends of Portsmouth Harbour Lighthouse. So, uh, yeah, I do have, and I, I've investigated probably uh, a dozen different uh, types as well. So, yeah. Well, we need to make sure that you can add uh, Hoop Lighthouse to that list then when you come visit us. Really? The oh. oldest working lighthouse in the world. 
and Ricard and uh, Carney TripAdvisor, the flashiest lighthouse in the world. Ooh. Yeah. Oh, really? Oh. There you go. I, I I know that Steve is going to take me to see the uh, the world's uh, most smallest. Amazed, smallest. Yeah. So I, I'm hoping to investigate that. Uh, it'd be a very quick investigation. Uh, I, 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 I bring sure. I, I bring my K two meter and and ask the lighthouse light questions. <laughs> yeah, we have uh, for the listeners uh, on on the harbour at Tembe on the breakwater at Tembe uh, is an official lighthouse that's actually a street light, um, a modified street light, um, but it's officially designated by Trinity House, who are the controllers of the lighthouses, as a lighthouse. And it's uh, it's 15 feet high with a red lamp, right, a red bulb in the top of it. But it is in fact a lighthouse. And you got on to me about what we were talking I know, about. I know. <laughs> well, interesting enough. I mean, so many people would be familiar with the phrase uh, "by hook or by crook," but that actually originates from that that very same area that you have two points uh, on either side of the uh, inlet, one called hook and the other called crook, and that's where that phrase originates from. That you know, we'll we'll take it by hook or by crook. Huh. Which probably had to do with tidal flow and the height of the tide at the time. I don't know, but there we go. That's where it originates from. Well, we were there yesterday, and as I said, I can't not mention uh, the fact that you have to drive past Ireland's most haunted house, <coughs> which is celebrating 666 years of uh, well, not very much really. <laughs> um, there are lots of people who claim that the devil shot off through the ceiling there, uh, in a building that wasn't there then. Um, we'll talk about that maybe another show. However, just at the head of the Hook Peninsula is Duncannon Fort, where Michael and I uh, have conducted a ghostology in the past, and a number of... The, 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 there was those booming guns, uh, the cannon fire that was heard by the, by the team. Yeah, I mean, that's yeah, been I, you actually uh, broadcast uh, live from there uh, not right. too long ago. Yeah, it was, it was, well, was, it was too long ago. It was a year ago we, we did the live from Duncannon Fort. That's nothing uh, for me. You know, when you're as old as I am, that's like a drop in a bucket. Yes, and sadly, it's actually closed to the public at the moment due to uh, <coughs> safety concerns about electrical wiring and so forth. And, and oh. we trust that the powers that be will, in their uh, infinite wisdom, seek to reopen it at some point in the near future. But unfortunately, for the moment, it's uh, a no-go area for anybody. Do you know what is it? What is quite um, sad in a way? We we arrived yesterday uh, on Saturday. And we went to the local supermarket, and uh, was it hot? Over the. No, 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 this is just a big supermarket, Walmart type, uh, Tesco it is over here. And there is a giant banner proclaiming Ireland's most haunted house. I mean, it is a huge tourist industry. And it's based on, and we've talked about it before, but it is worth mentioning, it's based on a very, very flimsy tale. That's, that's actually, I don't know whether it's borrowed from a tale from Dublin and from the Hellfire Club, because the same tale of the devil playing cards and being discovered playing cards was told earlier by members of the Hellfire Club at Montpellier Hill, just outside Dublin. And I, I've always wondered in the folklore of, of storytelling whether it's just a story that's transposed with the family, because there were, there were family connections between the, the family uh, involved with the Hellfire Club and the Loftus family. Uh, and whether they just brought the story as a good story to tell in front of the fireside on a stormy night on the Hook Peninsula. Mm -hmm. 
possibly. I mean, the, the, the building was in the possession of, of the Redmond family and it was known as Redmond Hall. And, you know, the, the country being what it was at the time, the, the Loftus family acquired it, I think around 1650, but it officially transferred. Yeah, just before in, 10 to 5. Yeah. <laughs> but it officially transferred to them in terms of official ownership, if you like, in 1666. And that's where the whole 666 comes from. And, and you know, what's interesting for me is that time seems to have an accelerated effect on there because we're celebrating 666 years of a building that has existed since 1870. So I'm not sure how time works in that particular area. Monday so Monday, 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 here we go. Here we yeah, go. Every Monday at 11 a.m. for another episode of Ghost Chronicles Morning Edition with New England's own Van Helsing, Ron Kolick, and his inquisitive travel companion, Lou Blassie, the professor. Hey, that's me. Each week we'll delve into the realm of the supernatural where all that is is not what it appears to be. With remarkable guests, spirited conversation, and the occasional voice of the deceased, we'll bring you a whole new meaning to the term dead air. Ghost Chronicles, Mondays at 11 on Eagle Radio 1110. Welcome to Tokinet, radio with a cutting edge. Feel the need to do some soul searching or make some changes in your life to create a more positive future? then Circles of Wisdom is just the place for you. Circles of Wisdom is a metaphysical bookstore and more, located on Route 28 in downtown Andover, Massachusetts. We carry a large selection of books and music, crystals and gemstones, jewelry and gifts, sage, aromatherapy, and so much more, all in a relaxing and welcoming atmosphere. We offer classes on a variety of topics like yoga, Reiki, psychic development, alternative healing, and personal transformation. For guidance on this journey we call life, get a reading from one of our many readers at Circles of Wisdom, 90 Main Street in downtown Andover, right next to Bertucci's. Call us at 978-474-8010 or check us out on the web at www.circlesofwisdom.com. Lots to see and do in a feel-good place, an oasis in this hectic world. heart tonight who's still recovering from the faux pas of shining lights <laughs> down back passages <laughs> brings us back to the live edition of live from ireland edition of ghost it chronicle really live it is we would have edited that out we might still be if you're listening to the podcast and you don't know what we're talking about it's because we have edited it out <laughs> but we're live we're live from county wexford in ireland tonight um, and we're talking about uh, the folklore history the mythology of these ancient isles. And my wife asked a question today when we were driving around because she was talking about the tricolor, the Irish flag, mm-hmm. and the colours of the tricolor, the significant colours. Now, I recall that the original Irish Republican flag was a green flag with a gold harp. Mm-hmm. And it changed in 1922 with the creation of the state to the tricolor. Is that, am I right so far or am I wrong? No, the tricolour was raised above the GPO, the General Post Office in Dublin, 
for Easter week, along with the Irish Republic right. flag. Well, what do the colours mean? That was the question my wife asked. The How green, much trouble can I get into in explaining this one? The green, the white and the gold, because she said, is it orange or gold? No, it's orange. It's orange. Yeah, it's orange, yeah. But that's not William of Orange, is it? That's a bad thing. No, it is. It is? Yeah. Seriously? Yes. Yeah. Well, what do you want? The Irish, the Irish were aligned with the French. See... What do you want? The Irish what in the French? No, yeah, the Irish. The Irish aligned with the French, right? Aren't they your best buddies? Well, they forgot to turn up a few times. I think. They... Well, William of Orange. William of Orange. Find a detail. So why would? That's why I said it can't be orange. It must be the gold from the harp. Oh, really? You're going to tell the Irishman what their flag is about? No, I was just assuming. Oh, okay. I was assu when I, when, well, let me put this into context. When we were driving along You're and my wife... For everybody here tonight. <laughs> and my here. wife asked me about the colours. And she said, it's green, white and orange. And I said, it can't be orange because that would be the Protestant William of Orange. It must be gold from the gold harp of Tara. Does that happen often that your wife is right and you're wrong? Frequently. According <laughs> <laughs> to her, anyways. I know somebody who will know the answer to that question, but I didn't think I'd ask it in front of 50,000 listeners. But mm. hey. Hey! Let's you know, if you're going to gonna, gonna crash and burn, you might. So why is the tricolour the three colours? Exactly that. So the green is for the nationalists, those that wanted to have a united Ireland. Right. The white is the peace in the middle. Not the bandages. P-E-A-C-E, peace, no, peace <laughs> in the middle. And the orange then is for the unionists or loyalists of Northern Ireland. Right. But the white bit is the peace in the middle. So when you fold the tricolour, you catch it on the corners, the green goes on top and the orange goes underneath and the peace is in the middle, the white is in the middle, but the green and the orange should never touch. So they get folded. One goes over, one goes on. Yeah. Why is the green always on top? Because uh, you're in the Republic now. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so in the north, it would be orange on top, green. And green. <laughs> no, they would be folding the union. Because of course, up north, of course, they've got the Red Hand Gang, as oh, as we so lovingly so, refer yes, to the north. So your wife was right. My wife was right. Yeah. So it's not the gold of Tara. Mm. No, nope, it's orange. But is it? Are you impressed that I even knew about the gold harp of Tara? No. Shut up. Because yeah. <laughs> you've probably seen a United Irishman flag flying. No, so a Ryanair jet. <laughs> Well, because we're actually in Wexford, it's probably important to say that 100 years ago yes. this year, that, that same tricolour flew for four days yes. over the Athenaeum in Enniscorthy, and it was the only other location outside of Dublin. Uh, the only other town wow. yeah, outside sorry, of town, Dublin yeah. to write. Yeah. And then for four days in, in 1916, the uh, yeah, town of Enniscorthy was, was a republic. Mm -hmm. It was a republic in 1798 as well, but... Um, yeah, so the only town outside of Dublin to rise beyond uh, Monaster Evan in County Kildare, which is above. I'm now very careful with how I describe things, <laughs> which is above Dublin, and Athenry, which is over on the west uh, in County Galway. So the only town outside of Dublin to rise and the last to surrender. So we're very proud of this. So when the guys go to the Athenaeum um, on Saturday and Sunday for their ghostology session, um, they're in a very important building um, in our county here. On a very important year as well. Mm. Very important year. Yep, the Athenaeum was occupied for um, five days by the Irish volunteers. It was their headquarters. So rations were um, secured. 
Um, it was set up as a hospital if a hospital was needed. But the rising in Enniscorthy, unlike Wexford, was very well organised, very well managed. There were no fatalities. Uh, there were only two casualties. There was no looting, um, no destruction of buildings at all. So a really well organised uh, rising in Enniscorthy, whereas um, Dublin, if you... Google and um, Easter 1916 rising, you'll see Dublin was effectively bombed out um, in 1916 for, for Easter week, but no such issues in Enniscorthy at all, which is a great credit to the, the, the men and women on, on both sides, in effect. Wow, okay, that's pretty cool. But I, I want to ask you, uh, because religion was such a part of your history, is it play an important part in the paranormal or the hauntings? In other words, is religion involved in the stories and the hauntings? In other words, monks uh, or wherever, some of the reasons for the hauntings? I let Michael answer. Yeah, I, suppose I, I, I can only talk in terms of my own experience in dealing with mm -hmm. the subject and dealing with people, and I would have to say from my experience, not particularly um, I mean, even in terms of locations over here, people who are interested in, in the subject of the supernatural, the paranormal, wouldn't have a huge interest, for example, in spending times, uh, time in graveyards. Mm -hmm. um, I know that other countries tend to frequent them, but certainly not over here. Um, and, and stories don't generally link directly, at least, to, to issues of religion. Now, they, they may have led to the demise of somebody who may, after that, have been reported to be seen, but it wouldn't be specifically driven by religion. Now, people who explore the subject might employ religion as a tool within that um, that um, arsenal of, of how they explore it. But no, you know, in terms of stories and reports, to no significance whatsoever on really over here. Okay, because I, I know in the UK there are so many stories that involve uh, monks and and cardinals. Of course, the cardinal that uh, uh, hung the guy there from the the castle wall, and what was that? Uh, we uh, hung so many guys from castle. Yeah, wall. I know that's the thing. Uh, you know, when, and, the thing you is, know, when, the thing is, though, in actual fact, we have in in Britain we have this uh something that ireland didn't suffer uh we had the dissolution of the catholic uh, religion we had the dissolution of the monasteries by henry the mm -hmm. and that left a huge scar on the psyche of the people of great britain and it did um we have very many monks we have an extraordinary number of phantom monks but Anne, Anne Winsper, uh, who, who's also been a guest on the show, uh, and I studied this, the idea of costume and dress. And if you look at the medieval peasantry, if you look at the, the style of dress from the 17th century right the way back to the, the, the sort of 11th century, the idea of a hooded, robed garment was predominant. The monks didn't have a costume as such. They were wearing pretty much what everybody else was wearing. And so in, with our 20th century vision, our 21st century mindset, we see every robed, hooded figure as a monk Good rather point. than as a figure, you know, because we have this scar on our psyche caused by the dissolution of the monasteries. We have so many abandoned churches and monasteries that were laid waste by Henry VIII. So right. many of our big stately homes are, are, you know, were ceded to the landed gentry, were ceded to Prince Harry's friends and, and pals 
and by the royal family in exchange for money so that we could continue the war with France and everybody else. Um, so it is it, it's the, the phantom monk is more of a phenomena related to appearance based upon the psyche of the dissolution, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. But I wasn't there. I wouldn't disagree with you, but I would say we do have a parallel in Ireland in that there are tons of stories of apparitions of priests, um, particularly from the penal law. So instead of the dissolution of the church, we would have had um, the imposition of the penal laws where you couldn't practice your religion. So priests would have always been on the run. Um, So masses would have been said at mass rocks in fields. uh, Priests would have been um, concealed within houses. Mm -hmm. So you'll get stories of... um, priests that are seen. I think, Ron, we had a chat the last time about priests that were seen where they hadn't said a mass that they had told somebody that they would say, and they were condemned for to say the mass, to walk the earth and say the mass until somebody came and, uh, you know, and acknowledged the the mass. So, um, stories of the devil, I mean, they're still linked to religion. Stories about the banshee omens of death, they're all entwined around religion. So I would say up until probably the, the you know the 70s, the mid 70s in Ireland, 1970s in Ireland, Ireland would have been very much in fear of superstition, um, fear of the fear of the clergy, fear of the power of the clergy. But I think that's the key thing, though, the word fear, mm-hmm. and, 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 and it's control of the masses through fear. I think if we distill it down to its very basic form, to me, that's what its motivation was, controlling the masses through fear, whether it was by religious means or, or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, only half a mile from here, there is a, a friary church, uh, which would have would still houses monks, and that same story is associated with that, that there was a young uh, novice monk who came down to the church early one morning and there was an older priest who pleaded with him to help him say the Mass and when he did then he was able to ascend to wherever it was he was due to head off to at that stage, you know. But um, yeah, to me, I think, you know, and it's a retrospective perspective, I guess, from our point of view, but it's about control and, and fear and religion was very effective at controlling the masses through fear. Right. We, so, we have parallels as well with well, even even in very well known cases. If you think, for example, of Borley, Borley Rectory, and the Harry Price investigation, one of the key phrases that was found scrawled on the walls of the rectory was "light mass prayers," and this idea of uh, the, there was a story of the nun um, who had come over from the the uh, convent in France who had got into a romantic entanglement. Uh, but this was just a creative, st- a created story by a, a, funny enough, a clergyman, the canon, canon Fidian Adams, who had read Price's first book and then put together this idea that to try and fit the pieces together. But the, the wall writing, which was probably ultimately down to um, uh, Marion Foister, writing on the walls, but nonetheless this idea of a mass needing to be said for the souls of the dead, for them to pass safely through purgatory and on into you know, go to the light, I suppose, is, is, would be the, the modern equivalent. So I want, to throw this, I want to throw this out there to both you, Mike, and, and even Jackie, is that, you know, we see different types of uh, ghosts as different threats. For instance, you know, if anybody saw a clown ghost, I think they'd all be scared of them. But uh, if if 
how is the priest or the friar fit into this? Is is he considered in, like an evil spirit or, or a spirit to be afraid of, or rather just an apparition? You know, there's some spirits that that uh, incite fear in you, and there's some that don't. Uh, how does that fit in? The priest, is it? A priest or a friar or whatever, yeah. Um, priests, I suppose, in the folk tradition would be either they're, you know, they're to be pitied in that they're, they're, they're trapped, they're trapped on, on this earth until somebody is able to uh, free them, release them. Um, or else, I'm, I'm just thinking back to stories about the 1798 rebellion or rebellion stories and any of the priests that are involved, either they've been murdered or they're, you know, they're heroically seen riding, you know, the white horse charging into battle. So oh, really? they're not really, they're not seen as anything to be to be scared of. That's more in the folk tradition, it would be more like a black dog. Um, uh. You know, we've talked about the ghost train, uh, the the ghost train many times but uh, you know black dogs will be much be more the banshee to be very wary about the omen of death but priests will be more either to be pitied or they're really heroic mm-hmm. would that be fair yeah i think it would be fair uh, unless you were and i use the word loosely but unless you were lucky enough to live during the crusades at which uh, which time you could actually buy your way through purgatory just by uh, signing up for 10 years uh, or whatever it was. So, I mean, it, it was a movable feast based on need as yeah, well. That's right. Give us enough money and you can get through, you too can get through purgatory. <laughs> mm-hmm. We have, I mean, there are so, what, what always strikes me is the, 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 we're, I am in a foreign country, um, just 35 miles across the water from where I live. And yet, it isn't that foreign. Uh, our histories are, are inexorably linked. But for me, as a, as, a, as a ghost hunter, as a paranormal investigator, our paranormal stories and histories are so closely allied and paralleled with each other. Uh, I can't really... I've never seen any substantive difference between an Irish ghost and a, a, an English ghost, a Welsh ghost, a Scottish ghost, or to that, for that matter, even a New England ghost, because, again, we're, we're dealing with the same cultural roots that have spread across, you know, across the globe. Mm-hmm. And we've taken our folklore, we've taken our ghosts. We talk about this idea of um, the mass to get through uh, purgatory or buying your way through purgatory. And yet think back to uh, 2000 years ago with Pliny in Athens and the first documented ghost story. And you have this idea of the chain rattling ghost that appeared and tormented everybody until Athenodorus goes and finds out what he wants. And he wanted the bones exhumed and laid properly to rest in consecrated ground, at which case the phantom of this, uh, the spectre disappears. Yep. That. That is exactly the same story, just with cultural twists and modern embellishments. But what has happened and what you do see, both sides of the Irish Sea and both sides of the Atlantic, is all of these ghosts, these apparitions and phantoms and spectres, be they black dogs, monks, priests, have given way to spectre, to, to, to phantom demons, to the evil dark, that, that these things are out to get you, that you're doing battle with them, that they're hunting you more than you're hunting them, and that you have to communicate with them. And ghost hunters, well, what do you want? I want to kill you, and why do you want to kill me? And it's combative. It's constantly combative. And it's, I mean, that's the same here in Ireland, isn't it, Michael? 
Yeah, that you you would certainly encounter that a lot, and, and you know I think it's again down. Yeah, it's a projection of, of of narrative, whether it be kind of collective narrative or or personal narrative that we project these these concepts and context onto things, uh, and I think that's why it's important even from the outset when when people report experiences that we try and separate the occurrence from that individual's thoughts about the occurrence because they're not necessarily one and the same thing. And I think even, you know, from a, from the point of view of someone who, who seeks to affect positive change for people who experience things they can't understand, that's fundamentally important. That if you can get them to recognize that one of the things they can control is how they talk to themselves about it. And if they change what they think, then by extension, potentially at least, their experience will change as well. And I think we've, yeah, had, we've had that conversation before, but I think it's important to repeat that. And we are dealing with, you know, it is... This this week in the local paper here in County Wexford, they, they are reporting on the Loftus Hall anniversary, the 666 years since 1870, um, of this event when the devil played cards and was found out and he shot out through the ceiling. And it's they're talking in terms of lockdown and the, the people that were there, they survived the night inside Loftus Hall. It's very much in this, you will, you know, dare you come along, will you survive? And it's the language of Hollywood. It's not the language of true investigation. It's not the language of true understanding and trying to find out about this interesting human experience. It becomes a night at the, uh, an interactive night at the movies with, with the bottle of, you know, with the box of popcorn. So I think that's really where you have to separate it, though, because, I mean, that's truly an event versus a, a true, you know, paranormal investigation where, uh, you know, there's no hoopla involved in it or anything. It, 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 it's a totally different... But I would different... say, but I would, I would argue that 95% or greater of investigation is now in that genre of horror. Of of the interactive scary movie, rather yeah, than but that, does, to that doesn't mean anything really. It's just well, it, well, it does I mean, it's because it all it's all it is that you know a bunch of people want to be amused versus somebody who wants but, to go to but, school. That's all. The it's the is, difference. It, but the but the thing is, it's the language that these people use. They are emulating the language of parapsychology and of psychical research in saying that we are scientific. We are aiming to understand and to debunk and to explore. And what they're really doing is running around in the dark, celebrating 666 very, very compressed Irish years and having a spooky night out and wrapping it in the shell of an investigation and BSing people into believing that what they're doing in the name of science and investigation is nothing more than ed- entertainment. Oh, and that's where, I, that's where I always have issue with it. That's the purest coming out. That's the purest in, in me coming out, and it will continue to come out, and Ron will, Ron will always castigate me for doing it. But it, I, I, I genuinely believe that in my lifetime... I believe you can separate the two. I really you, do. You, it, I can in my head, but can reality... And it, in terms of credibility go back to the 1940s and 50s psychical research people who went into haunted houses had a degree of credibility when they were talking to their See, academic now you're talking entirely different we're things, talking to their academic counterparts about their research exactly. and you're their talking exploration. entirely different thing That's but now absolutely. we're dealing with 
people who spend time in haunted buildings have got no credibility whatsoever with their academic counterparts. It's a tourist attraction. Yeah, people with the shows, right? But now they go to TV, they watch TV. Or, or So, I mean, it's just a different time, a different culture, and it, they're looking for it for a different reason. I, but they're I, not looking for it. They're not looking for it at all. They're looking for entertainment, and that's what but they're, they're telling. Yeah, they're looking for entertainment. Well, why don't they say, we are going to Loftus Hall to celebrate 606 and have a party night and bring the popcorn and we're going to scare the bejesus out of you? Why are they then going along and saying, we're going to do a serious paranormal in lockdown investigation where we're going to study the phenomena and bunk or debunk it? But that's the language that they're, they're saying that they're doing it, but they're not. Purist in me again. I'm on the high horse. <laughs> I, I'll tell you a story of, from many years ago of, of a personal, unexplained experience for me at the time and then uh, my experience of, of, of debunking it. I had cause to pass through a wood one night uh, on my way to visit a, a then-girlfriend. And as I approached the centre of the wood, I looked to my right for some reason and hovering about six or eight feet above the ground was a white hooded cloaked figure and i thought oh dear lord and i turned away and i increased my speed and i whistled as i walked uh got to the main road got to the house i was approaching the the dog that would have seen me so many times came around the corner and when i went to engage with the dog he growled and backed away and i thought good lord what have i managed to get myself into here um, the next morning, however, I did retrace my steps back through the woods, and in daylight, in actual fact, what I had experienced was uh, a very large iron drum of a thousand liter oil drum that was painted black, and the ends were white, and through the branches and forms of the trees, it looked to me like a, a cloaked hooded figure that had I not have gone back to explore and try and reason out for myself uh, I probably to this day would think I had had a brush with the uh, the other side. Mm -hmm. but we but always, we, hello all these events are set up so that someone goes in and has some type of an experience that's that's what they're set up for uh i don't have an no, issue there's, with no, that. there's no serious research going on in there and, and there can't no, be I don't in, have in an reality issue with that. i don't have any issue with that at all i know michael and i have spoken about this and we don't have any issue about if you want to sell people a spooky night out to celebrate mm -hmm. a building's anniversary that's fine but don't then t don't then pretend that you're doing anything serious. But if the two of them are not on the same night, there is a market and an audience for come down, frighten them, live in daylight. Of course, of course. And then there is a parallel Absolutely. market for all of the people who are academically inclined, and they can run beside each other, parallel Absolutely. with each other. Absolutely, but it's the marketing that I've got the issue with. It's the idea that you are selling people the notion that they're I don't know why you have sensible. to market if you're doing a serious investigation. It's if you're marketing, no, you don't, we you're don't selling market. it. You're selling it because sorry, but that's we're, what we're it is. Marketing, no, you, yeah, we're I, not marketing. Just, we don't market the investigation. The event is so marketing what's itself. What's the big deal? I just don't get it. No. Yes, I it is. Your synamics, you're getting some. There, there's no serious investigation. I've got my semantics in a twist again. Yeah, if you're, you know, if you're charging someone for something, it's certainly not a serious investigation. And and I think most people realize that when they sign up. And and most people like you, Steve, certainly recognize it. So what's the big deal? The big deal is credibility because at some point you have to present. They have no credibility if they're at doing some that. Point, at some point you have to present your findings to review 
and to the greater knowledge well, what? base. That everybody had a good time, and they do that. They put their little uh, things on the thing. Yeah, we, we got some nice little orbs. You know, we got some things. Ah, oh, this is TripAdvisor. Yeah, that's it, isn't it? Peer review yeah. now by TripAdvisor. Exactly. Because yeah. that's the that's type sad. of event that's that it is. It used to be peer reviewed by journal publication, not TripAdvisor on Facebook. They're a tourist attraction. So, so anyway, what's happening uh, to celebrate six of you got two minutes left, so... Yeah, so, so what's happening up. at the weekend, Michael? Uh, we have a number of people joining us at the weekend in the aforementioned Athenaeum, which is 100 years, or marking 100 years, if you like. Genuine 100 years. Definitely yes. 100 years. Of the... Um, Verifiable. Yeah, of, of 1916. And uh, actually, funny enough, very quickly, uh, we were in there a number of weeks ago, and one of the committee members was absolute staunch none of this has any potential to be uh real and it's all a lot of um hunkum, uh, hokum and pokum and that kind of thing but funny enough after we left he, he stayed there that night and woke up at half six in the morning because all the lights on the uh, stairwell had switched themselves on but we went to switch them off the switches were not on and wouldn't go off and then they went off one at a time over a period of about two hours now it's anecdotal and it's his personal experience but i just think it's interesting when he didn't see any potential in it and um, did say he'd love to have an experience and, and that was the one he took from the night. Um, now obviously we have to look at the fact that it's recently been refurbished and rewired and there may be bugs in the system in a conventional sense but uh, yeah it's funny. Be careful what you wish for you and might just find Steve it. is writing a doctoral thesis on it which will be ready in six months time. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure he is. Yeah, Just another one. Just churn them out like sausages. All right, you still got about a minute left, well, 30 seconds, so anything well, else you want I'm not even sure there's any places left for Ghostology, uh, but can people still get on the course? Uh, they can, of course. There's, there's room for the next number of days for one or two more people to pick up a space if they so wish. But uh, those who have already done so will be joining us on Saturday for five hours, yep. Sunday for five hours, so that's 10 hours in total of, of learning um, and uh, education, and then applying that learning on Sunday night for a period of time in the There you go. Here's the there is also a public access so anyways, investigation as well. There's the tunes, and we got to go. So, yeah. uh, also, don't forget tickets for a Spirit Quest uh, when Mr. Parsons will be over here in September are on sale now. So go to anyghostproject.com, the letter N, the letter E, ghostproject.com. Michael, Jacqueline, Steve, it's been a pleasure. Have a good night. God bless. Thank you, Ron. Thanks, Ron. See ya. Bye. From goalies to ghosties, long-leggedy beasties, and things that go bump in the night. Deliver us good law.